land management. End-of-year podcasts require big end-of-year thinking. I've got just the thing to get the ball rolling. So spend a few minutes listening to Louise Edmonds, CEO and founder of Carbon Sink. That's a gutsy little Perth startup finding its feet in the world of agriculture. I think a lot about capital and I... It doesn't really, really doesn't make sense to me. The people who have money, I mean, there's never been such a concentration of wealth in the history of human civilization as there is now. I mean, the people with money have enormous amounts of money. And they just cling on to it for dear life. I mean, I just don't get it. It makes no sense to me. <laughs> So then I was thinking about it and I thought, well, most of that money was created in the 20th century. And the 20th century was a period in which we we experienced the great acceleration, you know, like of consumption, of population growth, of technology, of industrialisation, you know, and all of this was driven by fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are finite. So maybe for some reason, you know, the capital has, feels finite too, because that's where it came from. Like it's carrying that energy of the 20th century. Scarcity. Scarcity, yeah. The energy of not enough. Yeah, yeah, the energy of not enough. Which leads to enormous greed. Yes. And grasping. Yes, and fear. So if we think about, you know the 21st century and what the 21st century must be for us to survive, it must be a solar-powered century. And the truth of the matter is is that the planet Earth is solar-powered. You know, it's our ability to capture sunlight and turn it into food and fibre and, you know, whatever we we need um, that creates wealth on planet Earth. And the sun is always shining. The capacity for us to capture that sun is infinite. It's just up to our ingenuity and our creativity that enables us to do that. You know, and another element is that the sun shines everywhere. So the 21st century economy is going to be a decentralised economy. The 20th century economy was a centralised economy because the gas wells don't exist everywhere. You've got to, you know, you've got to invest a lot in getting that stuff out of the ground and you've got to move it all around the world. Maybe because I see the world in, in, through a 21st century lens and I'm working with people who come from the 20th century, there's... Uh, bridge to walk over to understand that perspective. So that was Louise thinking deeply through many encounters and conversations with potential investors. And this might be turning out to be one of those there's two kinds of people in the world sort of thing. And of course we have both. We need those who are beavering away adjusting and adapting the engines of industry so they stop belching black plumes into the atmosphere. Maybe we even need those who are still sulking that they can't just open another coal mine. 
Why not? Plenty of tinkering around with 20th century institutions is going on. But the investors ready to leap with their money into the 21st century are much rarer beasts, it appears. When Louise was talking, I related her thoughts to the language of the well-being economy I have been soaking in this past year. The words abundance thinking as distinct from poverty or scarcity thinking come to mind. I started moving my thoughts past chicken-hearted investors and observing what was going on around me and assigning it a century, as in that's 20th century thinking, ah, and that's 21st century thinking. Here's a local example. Let's bring it down to the micro level. A few months back, taking my regular constitutional with dog and bike on the bike path around the west end of Geraldton, I came across a bloke lying across the path just up from the railway crossing. Turns out he had a bucket of blue poison and was insinuating himself under a bush, a big healthy boxthorn, ready to do it harm. The boxthorn is a fiercely spiny South African plant brought over by the first colonists as they stopped off in Africa on their way to Australia. It's made itself totally at home in the arid coastal bushlands of the Midwest. The thorns are so severe that one of the indigenous tribes of South Africa used to use the cut branches to create makeshift corrals for their cattle, and the bright red berries are edible and spread by birds. I had a bit of a chat with the bloke and suggested that killing the boxthorn would have unintended consequences. He looked at me surprised and said that he was making room for local plants to thrive, as in, duh. It's a big argument to get into, suggesting that wiping out a particular weed, reed pioneer plant, would not automatically allow more acceptable plants to establish themselves. Talking about plant succession and taking a whole systems approach wasn't landing with this guy, and I had no quick fix to match his quick fix. He got sick of my lack of understanding at this point, and just wanted to do the job he'd set himself to do as a public service, a volunteer, ably supported by our council who supply the poison. A few days later, I returned and scratched myself to pieces, removing ungainly spiky limbs that were blocking the path, stopped from blowing away by the fence along the railway track, As best I could, I manhandled them over the fence. I didn't know this bloke was going to actually chop the bush off at its stumps, or I might have made more of a fuss. About six weeks later, I took a picture to tell the tale, and it's posted with this text on the podcast page on the Soil and Human Health website if you want to have a look. Devastation in this small patch of the coastal bush. Four small coastal wattles dead, probably collateral damage from the poison, increase of bare soil, eroding in the face of the southerlies, which is the start of a howling six-month onslaught this coastal zone is famous for. What do they say about good intentions? 20th century thinking and the basis of the whole industrial chemical approach to agriculture in miniature. Destroy or ignore natural biological cyclical processes and use fertilisers, pesticides and herbicides as the basis of food production. The volunteer was thinking reductively. If he was looking under the bonnet of a car, this is the problem-solving method to employ. 
observe, say, a hole in the radiator hose, remove the offending hose and replace it with a new one. No sweat, problem solved. If only nature worked like this. Anyway, welcome to the 21st century. My self-directed task over the last three years has been to learn as much as possible about the principles and knowledge underlying cutting-edge agricultural thinking and practice. Getting a handle on the circular economy through the lens of land management and agriculture, carbon farming and the carbon market. All laced through with thoughts about First Nations people's contribution to the conversation. And of course, all underpinned by the deep connection between the microbial life of the soil, plants, sun, water, and this cycle's influence on human health. During this time, I have met some truly exceptional people and been privy to the development of very ambitious and change-making projects. And during this apprenticeship, I experienced many aha moments and shared them with you so I'd not be alone with my amazement. Three years on, the projects I've been involved with are now ready to fly. Very few of us have been untouched by the grassroots evolution transforming the agricultural world and the it'll never work voices have become fewer and quieter. Land managers know things have to change and are starting to see that by changing their practices, they can continue to grow food and fibre while regaining the sovereignty they have lost over their own farm businesses during the industrial chemical decades, when the only sure profits were diverted to the merchants of agriculture. Endings and new beginnings abound. In some of the projects I've been following, it's the case that finance has been won, in others, the foundations that have been laid over the last few years are so intricate and strong that it's a matter of time before the appropriate investment flows. Take Carbon Sink, the big thinking mob from Perth. You heard from their CEO in the opening take. They're currently on the road testing the market for their innovative soil carbon sequestration project. And full disclosure, I am part of this team. In the last few weeks, Louise and Craig Pensini, former farmer and agricultural sales marketing person, have been travelling across the southwest, pitching to growers interested in being part of the Southwest Grazing Project. This is a project developed by Carbon Sink at the request of the Department of Water's Healthy Estuaries Initiative. It will operate with some government funding and private investment funds gathered by Carbon Sink the whole underpinned by the compelling business and environmental case for soil carbon sequestration, which is offered by the mechanism of carbon credits through the carbon market. There's no hard sell here. Louise and Craig need land managers who are fully in alignment with the values of the project. The rewards, risks and responsibilities are very real. For the first few years, there is significant training and evaluation components the grower must commit to that will run alongside regular farm duties. And the challenge for both parties is to maintain measured carbon levels in the soil over the legislated 25-year period. 25 years is a time to conjure with, 
Deep generational change is not usually how far ahead governments and humans like to think, but a true partnership must be formed for this co-investment opportunity to function. Both parties have skin in the game. The program requires 20 farmers and 20,000 hectares for the first stage. Louise and Craig are upfront that they need to sign up five farmers by the end of the year to show proof of concept for investors. Without the farmers on board, Carbon Sink will not get the financial investment needed to hit the ground running in 2021. So Carbon Sink is technically a startup, but they're not your average small business. The grazing project is a pilot adapted from the original more ambitious project across the wheat belt that begins with 60 farms and 240,000 hectares and grows from there. For carbon soil farming to be viable, it has to be at scale, and Carbon Sink will be one of the first companies in Australia to engage with a legislated soil carbon methodology in a big way. This involves working within the regulatory structures being set up by the federal government. That the federal government is serious about soil carbon has become clear. The folks administering the Emissions Reduction Fund have started actively seeking feedback on the systems and procedures used in the program. And Carbon Sink is engaging with these government regulatory systems and with newly set up peak industry body, the Carbon Market Institute. A few weeks and a number of farmers later, Craig and Louise report back, delighted. There is clearly an appetite for change out there. They're confident they're on track for a 2021 start. In my regional town, Geraldton, that's 400 odd kilometres north of Perth, Rod O'Brien and the Tierra Australia men, in partnership with NAC, have won enough funding from the state government to begin their ambitious program to rehydrate and restore the whole Chapman River catchment area. A bunch of local farmers are on board with the idea, and the construction of water-slowing earthworks will radiate outwards from Rod's farm, Yanget, east of Geraldton, a convincingly impressive trial site. The Chapman River is small, maybe 30-odd kilometres long, but the vision is big and ties in with hydrologist Peter Andrews and his disciples' confident claims that using whole-of-landscape principles, every river across Australia can be restored relatively cheaply and with massive benefit to the natural and built environments. Even more exciting is the interest shown by First Nations people with connections to properties in the rangelands. They get this. The potential to heal the land and create jobs for their people on the land is one of the major successes of this story, and one consistent with Rod and his team's long-running efforts to engage young lake local trainees in the work they are doing, restoring water functions across WA ag land. Rod, who also runs a food distribution business, is ready to rebrand his butcher's shop in the main drag of Geraldton and start spruiking the sales of lamb and beef and other produce procured from farmers growing food and fibre using regenerative land management principles. Perendry farmer and changemaker Rod Butler and his mob are working closely with First Nations people, rangeland NRM staff, 
pastoralists and interested farmers to tell a story about the potential of using animals to wake up degraded arid lands on the edges of the wheat belt. At the heart of this story is training in holistic management and First Nations land management practices updated for contemporary conditions. It has been a painstaking stitching together of cross-cultural relationships that have been nurtured for years and are finally finding their feet in a shared love of the land and a genuine desire to shift the colonial story to a genuine engagement where all views are valued. Like I said, things are on track for all these projects finding their feet in the new year. So my job description has to change. I need to talk to a wider audience. We've done the learning, now we need to track how it plays out on the ground and maybe to connect what is happening with citizens who have not necessarily made the link between their habits of consumption and the changes that are sweeping the world of primary producers. And let me reiterate, this isn't just back to how Grandad used to farm, although that is certainly part of the equation, depending on the Grandad. This is a paradigm-shifting change involving deep cultural adaptation with the latest scientific discoveries and rapidly expanding IT gadgetry to back it all up. Exciting and scary stuff. We're all going to need to do a bit of shape-shifting to get on board with what is upon us in the solar age. And that includes me. I need to have a bit of a think. Where can I best put the words, the content, the language that I've been developing? Do I need to look at different platforms to get the message out? Can I use my words to help other fabulous businesses that are fighting to find their place in the circular economy? All this and more to be revealed in the new year. Thank you so much for listening. To all those who have enjoyed these podcasts and given me feedback, support, encouragement, I am so grateful to have had you to talk to. Let's hope for all our sakes that 2021 is the year when it all comes together for the new normal. Have a great summer season. I'll speak to you later.